because I truly believe that most people don't want to harm animals. Most people are harming animals because most people consume animals and therefore indirectly um, cause great suffering to animals. But most people don't want to do it. And they just need to know that what's happening and then also that there are great resources out there and ways in living and eating that don't involve causing this harm and suffering. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well wherever you are in the world. Just a quick update to share. I was recently featured on Apple Podcasts' new and noteworthy section, which is a pretty big deal and a huge honor. So I suspect some of you listening now are new subscribers. And I just wanted to take a moment and welcome you to my show. I'm really happy to have you here and thank you for trusting me with your time. I don't take that lightly. My goal with this podcast is to share conversations, exploring the benefits of plant-based nutrition and other powerful lifestyle changes, as well as strategies and insight on how to improve performance in sport and in life. Today's conversation is a little bit different though, but don't worry, we still managed to talk about fitness. So my guest today is John Oberg. He is an animal advocate, influencer, and social media professional who is dedicated to making the world a kinder place for animals by utilizing the power of social media. In fact, he is so proficient with these platforms that the content he has posted has actually been seen over 1 billion times. That's truly incredible. John is originally from Detroit, Michigan, and now lives in Richmond, Virginia. He regularly works with groups and individuals from around the globe, striving to make the world a better place for animals of all species. His own independent project for animals is supported through Patreon. Prior to this, though, he served as Director of New Media for the International Animal Protection Organization, the Humane League, as well as Director of Communications for Vegan Outreach. And I love that he's also an athlete. He enjoys powerlifting and has played soccer for many years. Now, for those of you who are omnivores, I know some of you may be turned off immediately by the mention of animal rights, but please keep an open mind and just give this conversation a listen. If you have a dog or a cat at home, I know you love animals. So just listen and at the end, ask yourself, how are they any different from the chicken or pig that died for your dinner? Anyways, John is so enthusiastic and a really great speaker. This was a fun conversation. We discuss John's experiences in powerlifting and soccer, why he became vegan, and the work he is doing as an advocate. He explains some of what truly goes on in the animal agricultural industries and a few strategies for people who want to start making the switch. And if you're already vegan, he shares how you can become more of an advocate for the animals yourself. Lastly, before we go on to the show, just a quick shout out to my show sponsor. All right. Imagine, it's the 18th hole. You've worked hard to improve your game and you're about to break 80 for the first time. As you stare down the line of your putt, you look nervously at your friends for some encouragement, a smile, a nod, anything, but they aren't looking at you. Their eyes are wide, focused on something at your feet. It's your custom ball marker from warlockgolf.com. Warlock Golf is a Canadian-based company rooted in small-town Manitoba that understands that golf is supposed to be fun. That's why they offer a variety of -of one-of-a-kind ball markers and golf accessories that'll add some serious style to your game. So add some fun to your game by visiting warlockgolf.com and using discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your order at warlockgolf.com. All right, now on to my conversation with John Oberg. John, welcome. I'm excited for our conversation today. Thank you so much for being here. 
Hey, Cassie, thanks so much for having me. Very excited to be here with you. Yeah, we. I've, there's a lot of things I want to talk about, but I thought a good place to start um, would be before the interview, you actually told me you've been powerlifting for about four years now, and I'd really love to hear more about that. So can you describe what the sport is briefly for people that don't know, and then maybe what drew you to it? Sure. So I, um, you know, I've always played soccer, but besides that, I like didn't exercise that much. And then around four or five years ago, I thought, you know what, I'm tired of being, uh, you know, somewhat scrawny. I want to like put on a little bit of muscle because I want to, uh, muscle and strength because I want to show that vegans can, uh, be strong and, uh, and kind of break that stereotype a little bit. And, uh, and so I started doing, uh, powerlifting, which is, uh, Pretty much, it's uh, a few main lifts like deadlifts, bench press, squats, and a few others. And uh, that's what I decided to start doing. And I I, uh, I used some app called Strong Lifts Five by Five, which in the beginning worked really well for me. And uh, and so I that's what I started doing. And I have just continued doing it, um, uh, working out about three times a week. Uh, almost every week for almost five years now. And, uh, and yeah, and, and that's what I've been doing. And, and, uh, it's become a, a somewhat of a passion of mine. So great. I love when, um, people are passionate, not only about veganism and plant-based uh, nutrition, but also, um, the exercise and fitness side of it, because like you say, I think it really helps dispel some of the myths out there that vegans are these weak, scrawny, like all we eat is salad. So, um, do you think you surprise people by being so strong and also being vegan? Yeah, that's actually, um, something interesting that's happened, you know, happens in the gym is, uh, you know, my deadlift. I mean, I, I, I don't compete. And so like there's, significantly more people who are like stronger than me. Um, but for someone who doesn't compete or take it that seriously, uh, I'm, I'm fairly strong. And so, um, there's been many times in the gym where, you know, I can tell that people are, are impressed or whatever. And I always take the opportunity to be like, Oh, it's cause I'm vegan. And, uh, you know, that's a nice little way of, of encouraging people to be open to the idea. Yeah. I love that actually. Um, I'm curious. So you've been vegan for, it's over 10 years now, right? Yeah. Uh, it'll be 12 years in October. <laughs> That's amazing. Congrats. Um, some, you were vegan before you started powerlifting. Have you, since you've taken up a more strength-based sport, have you had to make any changes to your diet to, I guess, support your gains in the gym? Yeah. You know, I, I don't try and obsess over food. Um, I would rather, you know, have slightly fewer results and like not be obsessed with food than like be so hyper-focused on the food that I'm eating and then, uh, you know, get the absolute maximum results. So for me, um, the things that I've tried doing are eating more food. So, you know, <laughs> just trying to eat more, uh, some more overall calories, trying to eat more throughout the day, um, especially starting early, I tend not to have an appetite in the mornings that much. And this has always been the case with me. And so, um, I try to have a protein drink every morning. And of course I try to drink, consume more protein, which is actually easy on a vegan diet. Unlike many people think, uh, so, you know, I eat lots of tofu, plant-based meats, and then of course, you know, beans, legumes, veggies, and so on. 
Yeah, it's we've covered um, the protein issue a few times on the show before, so we won't dive into that. But that's yeah. <laughs> that's good to hear. Um, so you mentioned you don't compete, but I'm just curious: do you have any personal goals you're working towards, is, or is it more to just um, get as strong as possible? Yeah, no, no specific goals for me. Yeah, it's more for the enjoyment of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, as like an athlete, I understand that you can't, it's hard to be motivated every single day to go to the gym. And it seems like you've been pretty consistent with it over the years. Um, so just for people listening, um, perhaps they can get some, um, glean some wisdom from this, but what motivates you to get up every morning, like even when, and go to the gym, even when you don't really feel like it? Well, what motivates me is not going in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I am not, I'm not quite a morning person, uh, at least currently in my life. Um, so I tend to go to the gym in the early afternoon usually. Um, and there are certainly days where I don't feel that motivated or I just am too busy and then I'll just push it off. And, you know, when I first got it, got into lifting like five years ago, I was, uh, I had maybe a borderline unhealthy obsession with getting, you know, uh, making sure I get all my workouts in all the time. And now I'm like, okay, you know, if I, if I, if I have to do two days this week instead of three days, it's fine. But also I have the benefit of, you know, doing only like three days a week, um, which, you know, gives me some flexibility. Um, but I also do keep in mind always like how good it feels um, when I am done working out and I'm leaving the gym and uh, I feel very, you know, proud of the work I put in and happy that, you know, I now get a day or two to rest. So yeah, try to remember that. Good, good way to look at it for sure. Um, so you did mention that you played, um, that you played soccer for most of your life, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah. So when did you start playing soccer and do you still play today? Yeah. So I've, so I'm 34 years old and I started playing soccer when I was eight. And Mm -hmm. so that's, uh, 26 years of playing <laughs> soccer, which sounds bizarre to me. Um, and, and like a lot, uh, it's always been recreationally as well. Um, also, uh, Dakota wants to say hi, Dakota. Hi. Oh, oh. <laughs> for those of you just listening to the audio is, um, what type of dog is he or she? Uh, he, she is like somewhat of like a Doberman mix. No, she's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She just, uh, I'm taking this interview on my porch. And so she's out here with me and this isn't normal for us. So she'll just walk, she just walked with me and started rubbing her head against me, <laughs> uh, which is not something she normally does, but she's excited. So she's uh, uh, jealous, jealous I'm getting the attention for the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so do you, you still play soccer to this day? Like yes. how many, how many so, times a week? Yeah, so I've been playing soccer for 26 years, and it's always been a really big part of my life. I never played high school, college, or like travel soccer, so like nothing too fancy, always recreationally. Um, so I'm sort of like self-taught, but I've been so passionate about it. I've played so much over the years. Um, so I've I've probably played on average like maybe 1.5 games a week for like 26 years. <laughs> wow. uh, and so, so currently I play, I, I, I play and organize pickup soccer, uh, twice a week. And then I play, um, on, uh, on one team and organize another. Um, 
That's, that's so, so great. Yeah. Um, I feel like sport, sports are so important to me and I feel like we learn so much through playing sport and especially like 26 years of soccer. So I'm curious, is there any advice or, um, I guess wisdom that you could share that you've ever received from a coach or a teammate? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's that you shouldn't get too mad at yourself when you screw up, uh, because it happens all the time. And if you watch professional soccer, like the very highest levels, uh, they will often take shots that go 30 feet above the goal. And so this happens to everyone. And so uh, I think that for me, I'm a striker. So like my goal is to always get goals pretty much. Like that's my, my duty on the field. And when I don't do that or I have the opportunity to do it and I, I screw it up, um, you know, I can become uh, upset with myself. Um, and I think that um, something that I've, and trying to learn for 26 years and it'll probably be a lifelong quest is to, um, you know, accept that, you know, only a per- smaller percentage of my goals or, or shots are going to go in and that's okay. And I think it's kind of a good metaphor for life where, um, you know, we're always, all of us are going to screw up in lots of different ways over a, a long period of time. And, that's okay. That's life. Um, there is literally no one, even the most successful people out there, um, who are, you know, successful in, in quotations. Um, even the most successful people out there haven't, uh, or aren't necessarily, you know, um, um, uh, winning everything they're, they're doing or scoring every shot that they're taking. That's actually really great advice. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So, um, do you have a favorite like pregame or postgame meal? I, I always love talking about food when we can. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I like to, so before soccer games and before working out as well, I try and get some protein in and a banana. That's it. So like, I usually have like a like protein powder mixed with um, some plant-based milk. So usually uh, oat milk or banana milk or chocolate soy milk. Um, and I'll mix it up and then I'll, I'll drink that with a banana. And that's basically my, my pregame meal right there. And, and as for post postgame, um, really anything, nothing, nothing in particular. Um, I just have to ask banana milk. I've never tried that. Okay. So it's, so it's, it's, it's a little misleading. It's, it's almond milk it's okay. blended with bananas. Okay. That still um, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Um, I think Almond Breeze is the company that makes it. Um, okay, so you actually is, buy it? You buy it pre-made? Yes, yes. Oh, okay, I'm yeah, going to have to look it, for this. <laughs> it's really, really good. And if you mix that with like a, some chocolate milk, like chocolate almond milk usually, like the chocolate and the banana goes so well together. So I don't highly think, recommend. <laughs> I don't think we have this in Canada yet, but I will watch <laughs> for it. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I highly recommend you do. Okay. Um, so obviously as, um, people probably picked up on, you're quite the vegan athlete, but I'd love to hear why you became vegan in the first place and how your vegan story kind of went. Sure. So I, um, I've always loved animals. My mom really instilled a sense of compassion for animals in me from a young age. Um, but I think it also, it also must've been passed down to me through, through blood because, um, even when I was a little baby, I would do like little things to try and help animals. 
At least my mom told me that. Uh, and so I've always been an animal lover, but I also ate animals for many, many years and never thought twice about it. And it wasn't until uh, about 12 years ago or so that I took a look at um, what I was doing and thought maybe I should change. And so the way that this came about, um, sort of a long story, but uh, what it led to is me watching a film called Earthlings, uh, which is a documentary about how um, animals are being treated uh, and exploited by the um, by humanity, essentially. And uh, uh, it's it's a, a documentary. I think it was made in 2006. I watched it in uh, in 2009, and is narrated by Joaquin Phoenix. And I was really, really appalled at what I saw. So I learned that you know not only are um, farm animals before this, I basically thought that farm animals lived decent lives. And that, you know, I just hope for the best when I, I, I ate, you know, chicken, fish, steak and all that stuff. And, uh, and so I learned two, two primary things during this um, viewing of, of earthlings. And one that uh, farm animals don't live good lives. They essentially live lives of misery from, from birth to death. And then secondly, it isn't just happening to animals raised for meat, like chickens fish, cows, pigs, and so on. It's also happening to dairy cows. It's also happening to egg-laying hens and so on. So all these animals are exploited in these most egregious ways. And then I also, um, um, bonus fact, learned that 99% of the animals killed in the United States every year are farm animals. And so it made a lot of sense for me to um, withdraw my consumption of these products in order to better reflect the values that I already had, which are that I loved animals and I didn't want to hurt them. Yeah, that's um, quite a story. And I think it's, I always find it interesting how different people find their way to veganism. Um, for myself, it was more the health and fitness aspect of it. And then as I find like many of us, as soon as you are vegan and you stop eating the animals and everything else becomes so much more important. And then I'm ashamed to admit I ate animals for so many years of my life, but I guess it's better late, late, but yeah, you know, I don't think you should feel ashamed because everybody's on their journey and they get to it whenever they are. Mm So whether you're like 17, when you go vegan or 75 years old, it it doesn't matter. Um, you know, all that matters is that you eventually get there. And I think that the shame that vegans carry around is, is, uh, a little bit unfair to themselves. And, uh, and, you know, I, I at times think, wow, I can't live in 21 years while eating animals, but you know what? It took me 21 years, but now I've been doing, you know, great vegan activism for 12 years. And, uh, and that's all that matters. And, um, and so the journey from age zero to 21 was, was important as well. So, um, so it's, it's, it's definitely okay. So I think that, you know, you and me and, and every vegan out there who feels guilty kind of let that guilt go and just you know, focus on the future and our, in our advocacy, you know, each day to, to try and create the world we're looking to create. Thank you for saying that. And I would like to get a little bit more into your animal advocacy, but I'm, I'm curious when you first went vegan. So it was like an overnight transition for you was, it was not. No. So I went uh, vegetarian on principle um, in for New Year's Day in 2009. So uh, that would be almost 13 years ago now. 
because right now it's towards the end of 2021. And I, so I'm a vegetarian on principle, um, based on the fact that, you know, I loved animals and I thought I should, it didn't really make sense about eating them. But again, I didn't know anything about how animals are being treated. And then 10 months later, I went vegan. So over the course of 10 months, but, but interesting fact is that I kind of wanted to go vegan, uh, or I did want to go vegan when I went, um, vegetarian, but I knew myself and I knew that if I went vegan overnight, that it would be too hard of a change for me and that I would probably just, you know, stop being vegan in a few weeks or a few months. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this the right way, the way that I think will make sense for me. And so I kind of started weaning myself off of animal products over the course of 10 months. And, um, but what's interesting is I didn't know anything about how animals are being treated. So I was like, I want to go vegan, but I don't for the animals, but I don't really know what's happening to them. Um, and then I kind of slowly kind of started switching from, from cow's milk to soy milk and almond milk. Cause that was, those were the main milks at the time in 2009, um, switching from you know, cow's milk ice cream to coconut ice cream, switching from, um, um, other dairy and egg products to plant-based products. And it was 10 months later in August of 20 or October of 2019, which is when I decided to watch the film earthlings and, and go vegan. Okay. Makes sense. And I think that's a really smart way. Like you obviously know yourself and you know what will work for you. And I think it's important for people to hear that because so many people try and just go, I guess like, um, immediately the next day and yet they're not really setting themselves up for success. So thank you for sharing that. Exactly. And that's the, that's the thing that like I try and get across is that like, we need to meet people where they are, not where we want them to be. So us as vegan advocates, um, we want everybody to be, to be vegan, right? Well, you can't just snap your fingers and make that happen. You have to, um, you know, you have to make compromise along the way for the better long-term prospects of getting people to be vegan. So that could be encouraging people to try meatless Monday and, um, you know, uh, or to go vegan five days a week or to be a weekend vegan. Like there's so many variations. Um, and so we need to meet people where they are. So like, there are some people out there who can go vegan overnight, but there aren't that many. The vast majority of vegans who I know transitioned over time or were vegetarian for a while and then went vegan later. And so, um, it can be ve- easy after you've been vegan for one year, two years, five years, 20 years to be like, Oh, veganism is so easy. Like it makes sense. Everybody should go vegan right now. And, uh, and that's just not the world that we live in. Um, so it's, it's important to, to keep that in mind for sure. Yeah. I, and also, also, yeah. also Cassie, I want to mention that, um, I love that you mentioned how, um, it's cool that like, you know, once you go vegan for whatever reason, you can be open to it for the other reasons as well. And so, um, for me, I went vegan for the animals and the health benefits were kind of like a, a bonus for you. You went vegan for your health. And then, um, later on, you kind of like embrace the animal stuff. And that kind of shows how, um, with a lot of, uh, vegans out there that, um, we think that you have to do it for, for some reason. And really, I think we need to appeal to whatever reason works for people because then once they're, they're open to that, then they're open to embracing other ideas. And it also shows the, the, the potential issues that we have as vegan advocates where, um, we are trying to encourage people to do something where they're obviously going to be defensive because they know that they're part of it. 
they're part of the problem, not part of the solution yet. And so it, it's hard to confront people um, with an issue where they are actively um, against it. So it's easy to talk about, you know, the problems with some, you know, civil war happening halfway around the world because you don't have some active partic- participation in that. But if you're saying, hey, you know what, you're causing the suffering of dozens of animals every single year, um, that can really put people on the defensive. And so um, it's important to to really minimize how much we put people to, on the defensive because they'll actually be more open to our messaging. And, uh, and of course, when they do start to become more open for whatever reason that appeals most to them, whether it's health or the envi- animals or other reasons like the environment or worker justice or something else, then they are more open to hearing us out on other ideas. So it's important as advocates to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah. So important. Like say there's like multiple entries into the world of veganism and plant-based eating, and each one is going to resonate differently with each individual. So it's so important to be open-minded to that. So thank you. And I can tell that (laughs) you've had a six, you're a very successful vegan advocate for a reason and you have very good understanding of people. Thanks, Um, Cassie. Yeah. yeah. So how did you even get into vegan advocacy, I guess, um, or animal advocacy, as you call it? Yeah. So um, this is a good question. I appreciate asking Cassie because I think that every vegan out there should try and get Mm -hmm. more into vegan advocacy. So for me, I went vegan in October 2009. Or 2009. Um, And so, uh, you know, I had talked about earlier how I kind of wanted to go vegan while I was a, a uh, going vegetarian. And I also wanted to kind of get involved with advocacy because I knew, Hey, you know what? Um, like animal advocacy is always something that's kind of appealed to me. And my mom actually, my mom and I did various forms of animal advocacy over the course of, of, of my young life. Um, and so I, it wasn't vegan advocacy, but it was animal advocacy. And, uh, and so I always kind of had this interest in it. And then I also was thinking that once I went vegan, uh, I realized, you know what, this is awesome, but I'm just one person. And also, uh, it's one thing to withdraw your support or something. So that's great that like those animals who, you know, you would have consumed are no longer going to be consumed, but like, that's not really like preventing any suffering, um, from other people. So I realized very quickly that I could exponentially help more animals if I encouraged other people to go vegan. And so I basically studied ways of doing this. And I read a really powerful book called The Animal Activist's Handbook by Matt Ball and Bruce Friedrich. Um, And I also read a kind of a companion piece um, um, called A Meaningful Life by Matt Ball, which is very short, like maybe a 15-minute read, which... I highly recommend everybody read. I'm sure you can find it on the internet still, but it really just basically made the case for uh, being uh, a smart advocate and, and doing so in a way that really um, um, puts effectiveness in front of the ego and, uh, and really tries to help as many animals as possible. And so I, Basically, in October 2019, when I was like, okay, or 20, 2009, I was like, I'm going to go vegan. I'm also going to get involved with animal advocacy because I want to exponentially help more animals. Um, so I don't want to just save, you know, 
dozens or hundreds of animals over the course of my lifetime. I want to say thousands, or tens of thousands or millions. And so um, I started getting involved in um, animal advocacy locally. So what I did was I, uh, and I'm going into detail here because I want other vegan advocates to really kind of think about the ideas in which they can um, get involved with advocacy. So I decided to look at what was happening locally. So at the time I was going to college in Arizona, I was going to Arizona State University and I um, looked up, I think I literally probably just Googled like um, vegan activists, Phoenix, something like that. And, uh, and I found um, some local meetup groups. So meetup.com is sort of like a social media platform um, for like um, meeting up in the real world and uh, usually around a variety of topics. And I found some ones that are around veganism and animal advocacy and animal rights. And I started doing a bunch of things locally. And uh, so I would do like potlucks. I would do um, leafletting. I would do, um, uh, uh, what else would I do? Um, food giveaways, um, all kinds of things. And I realized like, wow, this is really, um, uh, uh, this is really great, powerful stuff. And I continued leafletting. Um, leafletting was the thing that really spoke to me the most. And I decided to continue doing that while uh, as a volunteer, while going to college. And, uh, and over the course of, uh, of a few years as a volunteer, I handed out hundreds of thousands of, of leaflets, um, and maybe at least tens of thousands of leaflets, um, uh, over the course of a few years. And then that led to me, um, getting a job with, uh, a group called vegan outreach where I travel around North America, handing out leaflets full time. <laughs> so crazy. Um, I love I have, I have so many questions. Um, thank you for sharing the details of that because again, I think it's important for um, you're you're very passionate about not just um, advocating to like omnivores to eat less animals or go vegan, but actually helping vegans themselves be more influential in the world. And I think it's you're having a huge impact that way. Um, so I guess I have my question, initial question for you would be, do you think there's anything different about yourself that has allowed you to, I guess, fully dedicate yourself to full-time advocacy um, when perhaps another vegan hasn't? I'm sorry if that's a confusing question, but like, is there anything different about you that has allowed you to embrace this life? Or do you think everyone has potential to be as effective of an advocate as you are? Yeah, I mean, I think I've had like maybe somewhat of a, a unique, um, a unique uh, experience in the sense that like I learned in college I wanted to become a full time animal advocate. So, you know, that really helped me steer my my efforts in a certain direction. So, for example, I uh, I, I got a bachelor's degree in nonprofit leadership and management, which you know provided opportunities for me to make great connections. Um, um, and these connections that I made, um, uh, led to me getting a full-time helped lead to me getting a full-time career in animal advocacy, which is not necessarily something that everybody else can, can, uh, can just have. Um, you know, I also got started at this good, unique time in my life where like a lot of my, like, uh, maybe responsibilities were kind of done. Like I was obviously doing high school and stuff. And then like college was kind of wrapping up. 
Um, but it was before I started like a career. So I didn't, you know, start some career in like, um, um, a field that's just totally unrelated to activism. So I think that those kind of things, I guess, kind of worked in my, and I also, you know, didn't, and, um, don't have like, you know, um, kids, you know, or children, for example. So like, you know, I, I didn't have other major responsibilities. Um, so I'd say those kinds of things kind of benefited, but you know, I think that every vegan out there, and that's a very long winded answer. That was longer than I anticipated when I started talking about that. Uh, but, um, for the vegans, listen to this, who want to get involved with advocacy, you don't need to be a full-time animal advocate to, to make a really big difference. So for me, I don't know, let's just say I do 40 hours a week of animal advocacy. If you have four hours a week of advocacy, that's still awesome. And that's really, really empower, like impactful. So I would rather see, you know, let's say I do 40 hours a week, hypothetically. I would rather see 10 other vegans who have other full-time jobs do four hours of advocacy than one vegan try really, 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 really hard to try and get a full-time animal advocacy career where they're doing 40, 40 hours a week. So like each one of us can really make a big difference. Um, in the you know just a few hours a week like you for example cassie you are doing lots of other non-vegan stuff in the world but you are also dedicating some hours to volunteering for nutrition nutrition facts which is amazing and every vegan advocate should kind of take a lesson from you and say hey you know what no matter what i'm doing in my life i can kind of i can carve out a few hours here and there and do some things that i think are going to help achieve the world that I'm looking to try and create. Oh, well, thank you for mentioning that. That was actually going to be my question would be like, what would be your advice for someone like myself? Because I feel like I'm not a very confrontational person and maybe like to be an effective advocate, you don't have to be confrontational, but I think maybe you just answered it there. And it's almost like you need to find your own niche and need to find your own way of speaking to the world. And everyone's I guess outreach is going to be a little bit different. Am I understanding that properly? Definitely. So, uh, concentrate, like, I think that's a big, um, misconception of, of, of vegan advocacy. Um, not that you have, cause um, you know, a, a lot, but I think a lot of people out there, especially non-vegans, they just look at animal activists and think, Oh wow. They're all just jerks who want to like throw paint on me. If I were for code or like, um, just scream at me for eating a, a steak. And, most vegan advocates I know are not confrontational like that. Um, you know, many of them would be happy to have conversations, but like we aren't like overly confrontational. Thank you, uh, Cassie. Um, and, uh, and so um, there's lots of different ways that you can go to pro- approach it. And, and, you know, there are, there is a, there is a room for some confrontation. I, I think that this confrontation should be done at a friendly level um, and in a way that doesn't turn people off, but there is room for conversation like that, but there's also lots of room for vegan advocates to contribute to the cause that don't, doesn't involve any even person to person outreach. Um, and so there's so, so many ways that everybody can help. Um, even if like, you know, you're an accountant, you know, offer to volunteer for a, an, a local, not animal nonprofit and say, Hey, if you need help with your books, you know, I'm happy to, to contribute that way. Um, there's just so many different things that you can do. And like you said, Cassie, it's about finding your niche, speak, figure out, figuring out which advocacy speaks to you and, uh, and which ways in which you as a person 
can contribute to the cause and then just running with that. And this is especially better than like, let's say you're introverted and you think that the only thing that you can do as an animal advocate is going to rallies and speaking on a bullhorn. Uh, like that's probably not going to last very long. Maybe you can push yourself out of your comfort zone and do this once or twice, but like that's not going to be a lifelong form of advocacy for you. And this is a, a not a mar- it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So you want to really try and do as much as you can for the long haul. Perfect. Um, I think this would be maybe a great way to transition a little bit into um, social media because that's like you're a social media basically professional. And on your website, you share an incredible stat that your social media impressions have been seen over 1 billion times. And that's truly incredible. So my question for you would be, how do you use the power of social media today to expand your advocacy? And I guess, how did you even discover the power of social media in the first place? Great question, Cassie. I'm very excited to talk about this because I think it's like just so important for for my advocacy. So for me, um, you know, I talked about how I got my start handing out leaflets. So I was literally basically living out of my car, traveling from college to college, handing out pamphlets about veganism to college students. I handed out like 400,000 and, uh, and, 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 uh, by the, uh, by 2013, um, I had to basically take a couple of years off. Um, because my mom got sick with cancer and so I took care of her full time and, uh, um, so I couldn't travel and hand out leaflets. And during this time, uh, I did have the opportunity to take over the social media for the group I was working for at the time called vegan outreach. And I could do that from home. I could do that from my mom's house where I was living. I was taking care of her. And so, um, you know, I would sit in a chair next to her in bed and, uh, you know, be on my computer doing social media stuff for vegan outreach. And I very quickly realized, um, that I could reach substantially more individuals in a given day through social media outreach than I could, um, in, uh, uh, in leafletting and even the best day of leafletting. And I realized, wow, you know what? I love leafletting, but this is really where I can make the biggest impact. And so I started doing social media advocacy, um, running and overseeing the social media for vegan outreach, and then later for a group called the Humane League. And so I did that in total for about five years. And then about three years ago, I left and uh, joined or decided to do my own thing, my own independent animal advocacy, so my own social media channels. And, uh, and, uh, and that's where I make focus on making the biggest impact possible. So I look at social media as this really important advocacy tool, outreach tool to individuals, because I truly believe that most people don't want to harm animals. Most people are harming animals because most people consume animals and therefore indirectly um, cause great suffering to animals. But most people don't want to do this. And they just need to know that what's happening and then also that there are great resources out there and ways in living and eating that don't involve causing this harm and suffering. So it really comes down to that simplicity. And so for me, I really work to try and get hard-hitting animal-related content, um, especially farm animal advocacy content, um, to, be, to go viral and to be seen by as many people as possible. So I use Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, to, to as much of a degree as I possibly can try and make as big of an impact as possible. 
That's amazing. And like I say, you're obviously making quite an impact and I thank you for that. I'm curious, um, what strategies or I guess what type of posts do you feel get the biggest response from people? Um, do you find it like almost the, like the ones, the ones I hate the most are the, the video footage. And, um, but do you find that gets the biggest reaction from people or do people respond more to cute animal pictures? Like, um, what's the, what do you think? Well, sorry to say that the thing that you hate the most is the thing that works the best. Uh, the video footage, um, particularly of, um, I'd say that there's, it's probably the two things lead the way. And this is a, probably the majority of the content that I post. It's either showing the joyous side of animals. And I try and show like how farm animals can experience happiness and joy because most, most farm animals can't. Like over 99% of animals, farm animals are, are, are being factory farmed and, and, and living lives of just total misery. Um, and so I kind of show that side of uh, how that they can actually experience joy and happiness. But then I also show um, the reality that farm animals face. And most people don't know. Most people live or think that chickens, fish, cows live good lives with one bad day. And you and me know that that's not true. They live, uh, they're, they're bred and raised uh, in just horrible conditions um, and suffer from birth to death. And so... Um, the one upside to this, um, the fact that many people don't know about what's going on behind the closed doors of factory farms and slaughterhouses, the one upside to this is that that gives us as animal advocates a really huge opportunity to enlighten a lot of people because most people don't know what's happening to these animals. And so um, that sort of shock can um, lead to your content being seen by a lot of people because a lot of people are outraged by what they see and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I do want to actually cover some of like, um, the details behind some of these industries, but, um, first I would just like to draw attention that you actually have a social media course online, right. For, um, how to, for other advocates can use Twitter and you share some of your strategies there. So I just wanted to draw attention to that for anyone listening. Um, would like to check it out. Um, and thanks, I know, Kathy. I know you have an Instagram one coming soon, right? Yeah. Thanks for uh, mentioning this, Cassie. So one of the things that I've been most excited about in my own advocacy over the last few years, um, this is a, uh, I've developed a course alongside, uh, or, uh, in collaboration with advocacy collaborative. And this course is called mastering Twitter to change the world. And I'm currently, um, finishing up mastering Instagram to change the world. And then um, later on, I'll be working on uh, additional, uh, an additional course on Facebook. And so these individual courses are online self-guided courses that uh, people could sign up for online and take my courses and learn a ton about effective vegan advocacy. And, uh, and, really mastering these platforms to get the most out of it as possible to really make the impact that they're looking to make. And so for the advocates out there who are listening to this, who want to really make a bigger impact on social media, these courses are made by me just for you. And so I would be very, very excited for um, individuals to enroll in the courses and they can find those at advocacycollab.com and also at basically the links and all of my social media pages. 
Sounds great. And I'll definitely link to those in the show notes of the episode as well. Um, I'm not on Twitter at all, but I'm definitely going to be watching out for when the Instagram course launches. Um, awesome. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into a little bit more about the why behind veganism and um, why you're so passionate about um, people understanding what's actually truly going on um, behind like um, the... I guess, closed doors of the animal agricultural industry. Um, so I'd like to dispel a couple of common myths. I think most people, um, as you've spoken about, inherently understand that eating meat is cruel because the animal must die. But you also mentioned earlier on that the dairy and egg industries are also in- incredibly cruel. Um, so maybe you can just briefly touch on both of these. So the dairy industry and then as well as the egg industry and explain to people why um, there's inherent suffering in these industries as well. Yeah. So, you know, I will say that the dairy and egg and meat industries have done a fantastic job over the last century of fooling people into thinking that these animals live good lives, um, with lots of pictures on milk cartons and, um, so on of like green meadows and happy smiling animals. And these animals are not smiling. These animals are, are suffering. And, uh, and so it's not just the animals that are killed for food. Um, so it's not just pigs and, and, um, and cows and, and chickens that are being, um, just harmed in, in the most egregious ways imaginable. It's also dairy cows and egg laying hens. And, um, I won't go into all the great details of every way in which that they're, they're suffering. Um, but I will say that, you know, it makes sense that they're suffering because it makes sense because, um, these animals are, uh, being raised in massive numbers by minimal staff and, uh, their welfare is very, very low on the priority list. And why is that? Because it makes financial sense to do so. It makes financial sense to have a barn with 60,000 chickens, a uh, hundred thousand chickens. Um, and one, you know, person who like, goes in there every few days to make sure the water is working or something. And, and, uh, it makes sense that there's a lot of suffering as a result. And it makes sense because these industries are so incredibly powerful because of, um, um, just so many unjust ways over the last, um, century that, uh, a lot of these animals are just, or a lot of these um, industries are just basically, given free reign to do whatever they want and do so in a way that it's totally hidden from the public. So uh, what does this mean for um, animals? It means that they are confined in ways in which are just terrible. So egg-laying hens, for example, are kept, um, the, the majority of egg-laying hens are kept in tiny cages so small that they can't even spread their wings. They're kept in a cage like like this big, like like that big, with like six to eight or five to seven other chickens. Five to seven other chickens in its wire cage stacked on top of each other, and they can't even spread their wings, and they live their lives on these little wire cages um, with like the... Uh, um, animals, you know, going to the bathroom above them, just falling, dropping right down onto them. Um, and it's just the worst 
pain and suffering imaginable. And this goes on for months and months and months. So imagine the most uncomfortable you've ever been on an airplane seat. And imagine like being in the middle seat and then being there in having to go to the bathroom right there as well. And just and living there for months and months and months. And this is your life. And this is the life of many, many farm animals who face confinement. Um, and uh, dairy cows also will often um, face um, uh, confinement and and uh, and uh, just ex- exploitation in so many different ways. Um, you know, they have to be uh, like dairy cows have to be uh, pregnant to be um, giving milk, and so like when they have their babies. They, uh, their babies are taken away from them after only a few days old, um, which is completely traumatizing for the mother every single time. They'll often um, just moo repeatedly in distress and in grief about their babies being taken away from them. Um, and that's where I think I'll stop because I don't want to go on too long and, and, and um, just totally ruin your audience's day. But essentially, uh, it's important to keep in mind that farm animals just live really, really, really terrible lives. But the the other side of that uh, equation is that each one of us can make a big difference for these animals by withdrawing our support of these cruel systems, but also encouraging other people to do so as well. Yeah, thank you. And um, for anyone that wants to uh, learn more, definitely um, check out your Instagram and Twitter. And um, yeah, there's lots of places. Um, so I'm some people would argue to that and say that they only buy like um, free, like grass-fed, free-range eggs. Um, is how do you feel about I guess these uh, labels that are put on like certain types of meat? Um, are these animals treated any better? And um, what insight can you share there? Share there. I'm glad you asked this because as humans, we tend to try and make the take the shortest route possible to um, the the, uh, journey, the the path we want to take. So, um, or to get to the end goal that we want to achieve. And so a lot of people hear these, these facts and say, wow, well, I oppose that for sure. You know, nobody's going to hear this and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know what? It sucks, but I'm fine with it. Most people are like, I don't want to do that. So most people want to take the shortest route possible. And they think that the shortest route possible is by choosing sustainably grazed meat or humanely raised meat um, or, or um, grass fed and stuff like this. And I'm here to tell you that these labels mean very little. They, some things, some labels will lead to somewhat of a reduction in suffering. Um, so, for example, like an egg laying hen, choosing free range eggs over an egg laying hen, like a, a battery caged eggs, um, you might take a level of suffering from like 10 out of 10 uh, to like a 7 out of 10. But like even that, is still really terrible. And that's like one of the better examples. Most of these labels really mean almost nothing. And um, these animals still are raised in terrible ways. Um, like grass-fed, for example, only appeal uh, or organic only applies to what these animals are fed. It doesn't even apply to how they're treated. And so they can still be treated in all the different ways that are terrible, but they just happen to eat organic food instead of non-organic food. And therefore like people feel better about themselves. They pat themselves on the shoulder for that. But that's not doing anything for animals. But if you want to take the really, if you actually want to take the shortest route to the goal that you want to do, it's eat more plant-based food. And 
This is so easy in 2021. It was not that hard in 2009 when I did it, but in 2021, it's exponentially easier. You can find vegan food at essentially all restaurants, even fast food restaurants. I mean, Taco Bell is experiencing experimenting with vegan meat. Um, you've got the Impossible Whopper at Burger King. Um, uh, McDonald's is launching the McPlant Burger. Like you can get vegan food everywhere. Um, grocery stores are full of plant-based food. Like there's plant-based options everywhere. And so um, <clears throat> the times are changing in the best way that each one of us can make a difference, but eating more plant-based food. And if you haven't guessed by now, you know, I am not an all or nothing kind of person, right? Because I want, I'm focused on the long, the long game, not the short game. And so, um, if you hear this and you're like, I want to make a difference, um, don't think, okay, I need to find sustainably raised animals or sustainably raised meat. Cause that's mostly BS. I, if you want to make a difference, say, okay, I'm going to eat more plant-based food. You don't need to go vegan overnight. Um, you should try at least experimenting with more plant-based foods, um, whether that's doing meatless Mondays or, um, uh, again, maybe vegan five days a week or weekday vegans or vegans before six or week vegan, vegan after six. Whatever it is that works for you, go for it. There are tons and tons of resources online and on Instagram and on social media platforms. Um, so really just, just give it a shot. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Thank you. Thank you for um, sharing that. And that's my view as well. It's like, I like to say plant predominant, like the more plants, the better. Like, don't worry about, it doesn't have to be perfect. I think what's what's the phrase? Like, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Enemy of, like that. Yes, yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's like, I feel like people get so caught up in the nuances that they like, they're missing like the bigger picture here. So the more and plants, the, the better. And on that point too, is that, None of us are perfect. Yeah, I'm here to tell you. Even like lifelong, you're like longtime vegans are not perfect, right? Like we drive cars, and you know, uh, we hit insects while we're driving. Um, you know, we like like there's no like there's no one is perfect. Right? If we wanted to be perfect, you would literally have to go like just naturally die in a forest somewhere, and let like your body decompose or something. Like nobody is perfect. Okay, um, and so. Uh, there is, so, so you have to draw the line somewhere and, um, draw that line somewhere reasonable and encourage other people to get to that point as well. And, uh, and, and don't look at this as like some all or nothing thing where you have to be, um, all in, or you're a, you know, a POS like that. That's not the case. Like do what you can within reason. Um, hopefully with the end goal of, of being as effective as you possibly can in your own food choices and also in your own advocacy. And such good advice. Um, so before we kind of close out here, I just wanted to ask like one more thing about, um, I want to ask about fish real quick, because I think a lot of people, I know you focus um, mostly on farm animals and um, that's where most of this, well, no, I wouldn't say most, I actually don't know the facts, but um, some people don't think fish are as conscious or that their lives aren't as valuable as um, say like a cow or a pig. And I would just like to quickly hear your thoughts on this. Um, I guess environmental reasons aside, because um, like, uh, especially with sea spiracy coming out, most people are aware that there's huge detriment to the oceans and the planet um, with the fish industry. But when we're just talking about 
I guess, like animal cruelty. How do fish um, stand with you, I guess? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad you asked this question, Cassie, because uh, fish are just, um, just abused in horrible, horrible, horrible ways. And this actually brings us to the uh, part of the conversation I've tried kind of subtly getting to. And that's like, it's important for us as animal advocates to focus on the areas where we can make the biggest difference. Mm -hmm. And when you take into consideration that 99% of animals that are killed in the United States every year are animals that we eat, that's huge. So that means that each one of us can make a really big difference if we focus on our animals that are being raised to eat, be eaten. But if you take, if you take that number and you look at it, over 90, 95% of those animals are chickens and fish and a huge, huge majority of those are fish. And so uh, if you want to make a really big difference for animals, advocate for fish because fish are suffering in terrible, terrible ways. And up until just a few years ago, a lot of people thought that fish didn't feel. They thought that they were just like, you know, basically inanimate objects swimming around the ocean. And that's not the truth. They are they are capable of suffering, which, I mean, I wish they weren't capable of suffering, okay? Like, that would be great because, I mean, a lot of fewer animals suffering. It would mean that we could focus our resources on other animals. But fish do suffer. And if you don't believe me, check out some of the great work from Jonathan Belcombe, who has done fantastic work um, highlighting the emotional capacity and the emotional lives of um, fish and of um, animals that live in the, the ocean and, and seas, and uh, and so um, so farm animals. So so fish really don't get as much attention as possible, and that's because they are much more different than us. Just like people often think about cows and pigs before they think about chickens, because chickens are a lot less like us. Fish are even to a greater degree less like us. They live in the water. They are you know they covered in scales like they are so different than humans so it's harder for us to relate to them but they suffer in terrible terrible ways and uh, and just in terrible numbers as well and also they can be they suffer whether they are farmed um, or they're caught in the wild they suffer very very terribly in both ways um, in so many so many ways so I do recommend that your listeners, Watch the film Seaspiracy if they have not. Um, it's S E A S P I R A C Y. Um, Seaspiracy is a made up word, so it sounds kind of weird when you say it out loud. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a very very powerful film um, that highlights a lot of these issues. And and again, Cassie, I'm very glad you asked about fish because fish really need our attention. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I asked too because I think there's there's again so much misinformation out there, and um, I finally worked up the courage to watch Seaspiracy a couple of months ago, and like say it's an eye opener for sure. So if you haven't seen it, watch it. I'll put the link again in the show notes here. So I think we kind of covered what I was going to kind of finish out with was asking you like advice if someone's listening to this, like, and they want to make a switch, like, what would be your advice? I think you kind of covered that because like the message I'm getting from you is like, it doesn't have to be like overnight, like find some of these, um, more plants, the better sort of thing. Um, look to some of these substitution meats, but I guess, is there any other advice that you'd want to share? Yeah. You know, um, do this at a, a, a sustainable pace. 
Um, because you know, what's the point of being going vegan overnight for a few weeks or a few months and then being like, wow, this is too hard. I'm going to throw in the towel because odds are you'll never try it again. Uh, odds are you, you now think that vegan is just too difficult. So do this in a way that works for you over the long term. Um, that's really, really important. And there are so many resources out there and I really recommend finding community. A, a big reason that people give up on veganism is because they don't have community. And luckily, um, our significant focus on the digital world, I mean, right now we're talking in the digital world, you know, this is going to be promoted on social media and on podcast platforms and so on, which is part of the digital world. You can find community. So connect with others who are like-minded and whether it's as simple as going to Instagram and searching for hashtags or going to Twitter and following other vegan or animal advocate, animal advocacy accounts, whatever works for you, really try and find community and, um, and, and just know there's so many resources out there. Two of my favorite resources for new vegans or people interested in trying are Veganuary. Um, you can go to veganuary.com. That's like the words vegan plus January together, Veganuary. Um, and also um, challenge22.com where people can sign up and actually get like paired up with vegan mentors. And, uh, and I highly, highly recommend people give those a shot. Sounds great. Again, all in the show notes. So easy click for people. Um, so I guess, is there anything that you're just burning to share that I didn't ask you about? I just like to give that opportunity if there's anything that I didn't ask that I should have. No, I think we covered everything. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned my course, my courses. Um, uh, I'm very excited about these. And I think that these are a really fantastic way for any advocate, any, any animal advocate who wants to make a big difference to, to make a difference. And these are online self-guided courses. So you can go at a pace that works for you um, with these courses. And you'll learn a lot about being the most effective animal advocate that you can be. So I highly recommend checking those out at advocacycollab.com. Sounds great. So I guess just, is there, I always like to leave people with like one final thought. So what is, if one thing that you would like people listening to take away from this conversation, it can be related to something we've talked about or something completely different. Yeah, it's, it's, it's be the best you can be, but like accept that like, you know, no one is perfect and you should do everything you can within reason and in a sustainable way. And so, um, whether that's eating, uh, uh, whether that's eating mostly vegan or some vegan food as you, you know, try and experiment with this rather than going fully vegan overnight, or if you're already an animal, a vegan animal advocate, accepting that, like, maybe you're not a full-time vegan advocate doing this for like 40, 50 hours a week, but you can do this for a few hours a week. That is amazing and needed. So um, really just do what you can within reason. And, uh, and, and of course, just work to find community um, because community is going to really help you in a lot of ways. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, John. Um, if there's, if you're pretty easy to find on the internet, I guess, but if people are listening and they want to connect with you, where do you want to direct them to? People can follow me on my social media channels on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at John Oberg. That's J-O-H-N-O-B-E-R-G. And on Facebook, it's John Oberg Official. And then um, people can go to my website, johnoberg.org. And if anybody wants to support my work that I do for animals on social media, um, on social media, they can become patrons of my work through my Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash johnoberg. Sounds great. 
thank you again. This has been a great conversation and I truly appreciate you spending this hour with me. Thanks for being such a great interviewer, Cassie, and taking time with me. I really appreciate you and everything you're doing for animals. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.